0: Rolling Stone magazine once said if Sam Miller's life was fiction, it would be a thriller. But it's a true story. You're gonna hear how Sam masterminded and pulled off one of the biggest robberies in American history.
1: But the other guy, Trigger happy, I couldn't believe he standing there and he had the cons out like, you know, like he's gonna take a gun out to me, you know? I says, Don't do it pal, do not, do it, people are gonna die, it's not worth it, you know? And his hand kept going, no for the gun in the holster. I thought, oh my god, you know what am I gonna do here? We pick up the story
0: from where we left off in the previous episode when Sam puts the IRA behind him and moves from Belfast to New York. I hope you enjoy the episode. So you get out after eight years. You finally get out and you decide to move to New York.
1: Well, the decision was made for me. I just got out and I was going to report back to the active Service for the IRA but my father and all had seen the state I was in you know I was just a mental wreck physical wreck and they didn't want me going back to prison you know they, they wanted me to have a life and my father introduced me to a young girl at the time you know she ended up becoming my wife later on you know but at the time my father was just trying to get me to go with this girl so she would keep me away from the IRA sort of thing you know he thought you've done enough for Ireland it's time to live get a bit of life you know
0: So did your family, like did your father, just on that, you've done enough for Ireland, but yes, were you guys, the IRA guys that spent time in in prison and on protests and things like that, when you got out, were you treated like, I'm trying to think of how a war hero is treated, like were you guys treated as almost like celebrities or almost like thank you for what you've done for the country
1: kind of thing? Yes, we were indeed. You know, the whole communities came out, I'd be honest with you, most of us, most of the prisoners couldn't handle it. You know, they had these big clubs open for us to go and celebrate and, you know, come and meet us and greet us. It was nice on their behalf, thinking about us like that, but you couldn't, your mind, your mental, couldn't, you didn't want people around you. They were suffocating you. A lot of people got angry because I didn't show up at places to go, you know. They didn't understand. I just wanted to be on my own, to be left alone. It's hard to explain to people what that does to you, being in solitary confinement. For eight years, you know, it screws up your mind. People had put on parties for me, and my father was a bit angry at the time, you know. Wanted me to go and meet my aunts, my uncles, my friends, and I just couldn't do it. You know, I was too nervous. I was just couldn't handle meeting people, you know. That's when he got me to meet this young girl, and Celia became my wife. But talking about New York, I had no intentions of going to New York. I always dreamed about it, but I had no money. I, was, I never had any money in my life, you know. I was always skint. But my friends were in New York. I'd been there for years. They were working away in the casinos. And one day an envelope came to my house and it was from my buddies over in New York. And inside it, I'll never forget it, it was ten one hundred dollar bills.
0: Happy days.
1: Yeah, I, I couldn't believe it. I kept looking at this envelope with all this money, you know. And my friends had left a note saying, Get over to New York. We've got a great job for you. You've done enough over there. Get over here, and make a life for yourself, live You know, start to live for yourself, you know. Me and my girlfriend, Bernadette, uh, we decided to go to New York for a couple of days, enjoy New York, you know. So I remember all this. I I had to get smuggled into New York. I wasn't allowed into New York. I remember telling my father that it was a Friday. I said, look, I'll be back on Monday. I'm only going for the weekend to New York, you know. And that was 14 years later before (laughs) I seen him. Because when I went to New York, I couldn't believe it. What a great place. It was the first time in my life I tasted freedom. I didn't know what it was, you know, when I first got there, I said, what is this strange thing empowering me? And you know, it was like a spirit has entered me and it's, I didn't know what it was. And I, I understood later it was freedom. It's the first time in my life I had freedom. Mm. It was powerful. It was amazing. It just transformed my whole being. You know, I know it sounds corny, but I can tell you it was like a spirit entered my body, you know, and I became a different person. It was just incredible.
0: Yeah, it doesn't doesn't sound corny at all. It sounds it sounds quite plausible that that's how you'd feel. Like yeah. anyone goes to New York, they feel a bit like that. But especially you and your situation, um, what you went through, yeah, it must have been incredible. And then you got a job at a casino and worked your way up in the casino, didn't you?
1: Yeah. No, I started off as car dealer. I went to New Jersey, became a professional car dealer, worked my way up different jobs inside the casino. To eventually became the box man. That's where all the money goes. I was in charge of it. The owner trusted me so much. He knew my background from back home in Ireland and he trusted me 100%, treated me like a son. So I was in charge of all the money at all times. It was a great job, paid well, and it was the kind of job you hated going home because you were scared of missing some sort of excitement or some personality or some film star, somebody you just just didn't want to go home. You know, it was one of them jobs, you know, Mm -hmm. 24 seven, but brilliant, brilliant, best job I've ever had in my life, you know.
0: You had armed robbers breaking at one point, asking for you personally, didn't you?
1: Yeah, yeah, because I was, I, was, I was the only one who had all the keys to all the cash boxes, you know, and they already had their information given to them by a couple of dealers, Puerto Rican dealers that were working there. So these guys from the Bronx came down with machine guns and et cetera, and they started asking for my name. You know, they held us all up, held the customers up, held all the staff up. So we're all held up. We are all all had our hands up. And the next thing I said is, Give us the keys, we know who you are. But thank God nobody said anything and they'll anger me. My Belfast anger says, No, I'm not gonna give you fuck at all, you know. I'm not gonna give you a thing, you know. Because I was so angry, I wanted to fucking beat these guys up, even though I had these machine guns, you know. But next thing I say, right, everybody take your trousers off. Now we had female dealers and all, you know, customers, everybody had to take everything off, you know, because they started going through all the clothes to find the keys. And they said that we don't find the keys. And all these clothes we're gonna start killing you one by one one by one and one of them just fired a couple of shots up in the ceiling in the, the casino you know just to show us that these these are real guns they're not toys we're not messing with you somebody's gonna die here but if this guy doesn't give us the keys you know well once again it was stupid the anger me just wouldn't come across you know just didn't like i thought this these bastards were trying to intimidate me you know but it was stupid because there's people's lives on the line you know mm. I, I thought about it later and i should have just given the keys you know That's not to say they wouldn't have killed anybody anyway. You know, whatever happened, and they shot up through the scene, the casino. A Couple of neighbors outside heard it, and they phoned the cops. We didn't know this. We didn't know the cops were on their way. The robbers didn't know. The robbers are still searching for the keys and whatever happened. One in panic, it says, "Get away!" I can hear it. I can hear the uh, the sirens going because you could hear sirens away in the background. But you're in New York. The sirens are always going. You know, cops sirens, ambulances, fire engines—they're always going. So how this guy knew? That the cops were on their way i do not know this very day but they got away they got out the back escaped and then the cops came in and they arrested everybody they took us all out in the street it must be about 40 of us you know because they don't know if the robbers are still here mm. all they know is there's somebody in there with guns machine guns so they're nervous you know and they're taking us all out and they're laying us all up but one. Well, we've still got no trousers on or anything you know <laughs> and we're all lined up and the next thing the daily news that's a new york newspaper their reporter gets on the scene. So he starts taking pictures of us all lined up against the wall with our treasures down, you know? (laughs) The headlines the next day in the paper was dealers caught with their pants down, you know? I thought that was hilarious. (laughs) Of course it was. Very funny, you know? Afterwards, I thought I shouldn't have done that. I should have given the keys, you know, risking people's lives. It was stupid, but that's just the type of person I was, you know? How did you
0: go from being the victim of the of a robbery to thinking it was a good idea to rob a bank
1: well yeah it wasn't actually a bank it was it was bigger than a bank it was a armored car depot where all the armored cars for the whole eastern coast of new york come to to empty all the money from the banks i had a friend he was a new york cup and it's funny people say like you're an the area, how do you like caps it's different in america because most of the cops are Irish, Irish-Americans, mm-hmm. you know, and they have a big sympathy towards ARA and the Irish in Belfast and Derry and elsewhere, you know. So it's not that sort of a relationship, but this man was a good friend of mine. He was actually a bodyguard of Malcolm X at one time. He was put on the duty to uh, be a guard for Malcolm X when Mar- Malcolm X was in Harlem, and he was a highly decorated New York City cop. But he had a moonlight, he used to moonlight to get extra money because most of the cops, are, they're paid shit wages in New York, you know. So they all have two jobs, and his job was to look after the the Brinks depot in upstate New York. The Brinks, that's where my book comes from. The title of my book on the Brinks, this big big fort, all the armored cars, silver money comes in, and it empties all the money out. It gets all the new stuff for the banks the next morning. So the whole eastern coast in America, they all come here. So you can imagine the money, millions and millions and millions of dollars every night in this place. And when I went up a few times. And they bring me up the 4th of July, Independence Day, his birthday, things like this. And I started to get to know this place. And I couldn't believe I was inside this big depot. And all these guards with their shotguns are all sleeping, you know, or, or eating pizza. The shotguns are all just threw away in the ground, you know, like no one's looking after the money. And all the big safes, these big giant safes are just laying open. They're that lazy. They can't have been barred to close the safes because they're thinking, well, we're going to have to open it up again. And all there are, what's the point lacking it? So they weren't up, you know, they just didn't give a shit. And they used to leave the doors open in the front to let the pizza guy in and out, you know. So it was a cut, we're too lazy to go and answer the door and let him in, you know. They tell me the door's going to be open, make sure you come over at seven o'clock. And, you know, I couldn't believe this the shit, you know, the security all. Like you know, and I, This little idea started to form in my head about maybe taking a lot of money out of, you know, a couple of hundred thousand dollars, you know, you know one or one hundred thousand, two hundred thousand. I had this sort of idea to get this mad amount of money out of it, you know, steal it, like, you know. So I started thinking different things you know, and on, it was all crazy ideas. I knew I wouldn't do it, just thought in my head, you know, I would try to do it. You know, it was more like, have you got the balls? Do you still have the balls to do these things? You know, these crazy things that I used to do in Belfast, but I couldn't get anybody. You know, I was, I was asking a couple of people who I thought might have done it, but who had the courage to do it, but they were laughing at me. They were saying, you're crazy. Don't even think about doing something that stupid, you know, but the idea never left my head, you know?
0: You did find a friend in the end, didn't you?
1: Well, I found a guy, you know, I sort of looked at this guy. He used to work in a casino. He was one of the managers. He was a, an ex boxer. had a great reputation. He's a good friend of mine. And I thought, well, I'll ask him. So he was all for it. Cut a long story short, we planned it for the winter, and we left New York City. It's an eight-hour trip. We had already stolen this van out of Harlem, put all the money in, you know. Mm. We didn't know much we were going to get. I was hoping maybe a couple of hundred thousand possible, you know. But on the way up, there was a big snowstorm came and I looked in the rear view mirror. I was in the van and he was driving with that behind me with two vans. And the next thing I see him turning off and I realized then that he had chickened out of it. You know, maybe got a wee bit smart and thought, oh, no, it's just getting a wee bit too hurry. You know, mm. Maybe a time to think about it. You know, as he was driving up to it, he didn't like the idea of it. I was finished. I didn't think about it anymore for about six months. Then the idea came back again into my head because I couldn't get rid of it. To cut a long story short, I got the right person eventually. I found the right guy. All
0: right, so the day comes. What's the plan? How did you put the plan
1: together? Well, the plan, you know yourself, no good plan. comes about all these accidents or something happens. But anyway, my plan was both of us would get in. Because I knew the route in, I knew what time the guards were getting changed That nobody would get hurt. That was the whole thing. Make sure no one is hurt. Because money, it's not worth it, you know. We had an idea. We took up a little van. It was a little, little tiny van, like a little mini mini van. Because we saw we're going to get a couple of hundred thousand maybe. If we're lucky, you know, we'll put it in the van. We'll get away straight back down to New York. So you have all this great planning, you know. Late that night, we just hit it. We just hit the, the whole place when the guards were getting changed. over we waited until the guards went. There was only one guard we were worried about. He was an old guy. He's retired from the caps. But he was like called trigger Hobby. Because he always kept talking about, if some motherfucker ever comes in here, I'm going to blow his balls off. You know, like, this is how he talked for years, you know. He's watching all these old John Wayne movies, you know. So we already knew about this guy. And I was praying to God, please don't let him be on tonight. Please don't let Trigger Happy be on. But of course, Trigger Happy was on, you know. So I sort of like, got a bit nervous, that, not nervous for myself, just nervous that nobody else would get hurt, you know, because of this guy. i you know, maybe going to be a hero, going to stop these robbers, you know. And my partner and I, this guy was gonna do it with me. We had decided nobody's gonna get hurt here no matter what.
0: What was your partner's name?
1: I, I I never revealed who he was. Oh, okay. I never revealed his name, you know, to anybody. Everybody has their suspicion, everybody keeps speculating, but he was a good friend. He was an he's all I say is he's an ex-marine, you know, and he was a tough guy. That's all say. He was American. The FBI had their suspicion of who it was, but they couldn't prove it. So I'll leave it at that. And when your your listeners read the book, they can try and figure out who it was to, you know. But anyway, we got in, you know, your heart's pumping. You're trying to control the adrenaline. You're now in this massive fort with all these big armored cars, and you're stinking about this money. But the first thing we had to do was put down all the guards as quickly as possible. So my friend, who's an experienced Marine, was able to put down two quite gently by threatening them. And I had to go and get these R2 guards that were down the tunnel. And one of them was okay. He faded like he was like, you no, know, hands up right away, did the right thing. No, don't, don't, don't be touching us, you know. I just said,
0: You had balaclavas on, didn't you?
1: Oh, yes, of course. I yes. yeah. had the balaclavas from Belfast. You had them sent over specially, you know. He did the right thing, just went down, put them down the ground, not a problem, tied him up nice and gentle. But the other guy, trick happy. I couldn't believe he standing there and they had the hands out like you no, know, like he's gonna take a gun out to me, you know. I said, Don't do it, pal, do not do it. People are gonna die, it's not worth it, you know. And his hand kept going, no for the gun in the holster. I thought, oh my god, you know, what am I gonna do here? And the next thing he just clapped, his whole knees started buckling because he was about 67, 70 years of age, you know. He's just there trying to get self some money, you know, moonlighting. And then he eventually just seen the whole stupidity of trying to do something against two robbers, you know.
0: Wasn't your friend Tom on duty?
1: Tom's on duty, and this is what everybody speculates because he was tied up too. Then he was taken away somewhere, he was dropped off. They said he was the guy that did it, you know. You had to read a book. I'm not saying who it was, you know. When you read a book, you can speculate who it was, you know. We started filling up a little van, and I was hoping, hoping for about a 200,000. I thought, wow, wow, you know, all this money, you know, come believe it, like, you know. Well, we piled the van up. And we got in, we gave each other a high five, because it was brilliant. All the guards are all tied up, and we're getting out. Nobody knows, and nobody will know till tomorrow morning. We're going to get away for eight hours before the next shift comes on and finds all these guys tied up. We're going to be in New York. So we piled up the van, close it, give each other a high five and started the van, and the van will not fucking start, <laughs> because there was, there was too much money in it. And all the smoke started coming out, you know, out of the back of the van and it was all fucking covered and we were scared of all the fire alarms going off and everything you know so we had to get back out start pulling all the money back out again you know and then the sweat and Then somebody's at the door somebody starts banging on the security gates fucking thought you know this is more guards have come you know But well, what it was was a, a no black guy had come up from the south and he got lost because where we were was out in a throughway and he was just asking for directions so we were able to block to him Tell him the directions of where he was going to, because we thought he was the cops. From you know, that was only interruption that we had. So we got back in the van, and this time the van started, and we drove back out slowly at the van, at the doors, at the gate. But the problem we had, we didn't tie them up right. I mean, it was ridiculous. We just tied them up loose. You know, we didn't want to hurt them or anything like that. There, you know. Mm. So the guards got loose, and we got out on the throughway, New York. We we're driving in, and we we're laughing and giggling like two kids, you know, because we've just got away with a scrap robbery, you know what I mean? We didn't know, when that the guards are out and they've called the cops, the FBI. So all the helicopters start coming out. Well, we hear the helicopters, but we're not thinking it's anything to do with us. We're driving on down the throughway in New York, not knowing that the helicopters are out looking for this van, because one of the guards was able to say, call out the van. For some reason, the helicopters couldn't pick us out. They I don't know why, they never stopped us, they put up roadblocks, and we just drove through. All different roadblocks, never stopped once, you know. We got to New York, put the van in this garage, underground garage. We went and it took us a a couple of hours to calm down. We went out and started to count the money, you know. And I was hoping, I said, please God, let there be 100,000. Even if it's only 50,000, I'll be happy, you know. Just give me a good bit of money, you know. But of course, it went into millions, the millions. And I said, what the fuck? What the fuck have we done here, you know? I started to get scared, you know. So we counted it, we eventually counted it up, it came up to about seven, almost eight million dollars. Mm. I almost shit myself, you know, I said, oh fuck. Cause this means the FBI now is gonna come after us, like big time, you know, it's gonna be in all the news, you know, the news headlines and all, you know. Because it's about
0: 30 or 40 million in today's money.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, it was a lot of money. But yeah. the funny thing was all that money we left behind when it, it came out uh, that we'd left 40 million behind because we couldn't get any more into that. van, that's all we could get in. But we left 40 million behind, you know. You know, eight eight million was enough. Can't be too greedy when you're only expecting like a hundred thousand dollars. You know, be careful what you wish for, because after that, things just went downhill. You know, because
0: you heard that the van left tire marks at the scene. Yes. What did you do about that?
1: Once I heard that, you know, I was getting I was getting tip offs. They says I got this call from a guy says get rid of those fucking tires. So I didn't think twice. I went out. I went to a garage and I knew where I lived, a Greek, gang, Greek. I says, I need four new tires. So he looked at the van and he says, you don't need new, they are new. I said, please, just just give me four new. So he knew something was wrong, but he didn't say nothing. He says, okay, customer's always right. So he put four new tires on, give me the four tires. I put them in the back of the van. Didn't think twice, you know. So I drove out, went away, driving, looking for a dump, or somewhere to dump these tires. So I saw a McDonald's, not too far away, and they had this big, Dumpster outside it, and I thought that's perfect. So I went over to the dumpster and I just dumped the four tires, you know, and drove away thinking, Yeah, it's in that. Little did I know the FBI has been watching me. So they go over to the dump and they lift the four tires out. <laughs> they take them <laughs> back to headquarters, you know, and they know that, yeah, we got the bastards, you know. Oh, God. So that was a start of like. It was like faulty tires, you know. Everything just went wrong, you know. Yeah,
0: it is quite a comedy. The the, yeah. the process that, the, Okay, okay. So so they've got the tires, and then you've got this shitty van that's
1: still full yeah. of cash,
0: right? That's right. You need somewhere to hide it, so you approach Pat the priest.
1: Yeah, I approach far, Pat. I'm not a very always hated the Catholic Church all my life, you know. I've never done anything firm, but I kept hearing about this priest. He lived in the village, New York. He's always helped the homeless. Very good man, you know. So I thought I'll approach him, see if he can find somewhere I could pay because it, it was massive amounts of money. Like, you know, it was a lot of it, you know, and we couldn't put it anywhere. So, long story short, I got talking to him and I said, Pat, is there uh, anywhere you could hide some money for me? So he knew I was, was an illegal alien. So he's probably thinking, oh, maybe $10,000. I want to put it the same because he knew I was working in the casino. Mm. So he's thinking, I'm saving up all my money. I haven't got a bank account. I want to make sure it's safe, you know. So he's thinking, yeah, he says, yeah, no problem. I get it, you know, bring it over to my my place in the village. You know, he's got this big, big house that he lives in, all the homeless people and all that. So I says, look, it's quite a bit of money. He says, ah, don't be worrying about it. I can handle $20,000, $20, you know, don't be worrying about it. I said, well, maybe a wee bit more $20,000. Yeah, don't worry about it. Bring it over. So I arrive, and he has a big garage at the back I drive in. He looks and he says, Yeah, he's expecting me to hand him an envelope, you know? He says, uh, Where is it? Where is it? I said, Yeah, it's in there. He says, Where? We're, I says, In that van. So we went in the back, man. Oh, my God. He couldn't believe what he's seeing, in you know, all this freaking money and all that. I says, Far, it, you know, what do you think? Is it okay? He says, Yes, yes, well, let me think, let me think, let me think. Give me a couple of days. Come back to me in a couple of days, you know? So that was the start of the relationship of him having the money.
0: Didn't a homeless guy walk past you when you're doing this?
1: There was a couple of homeless guys came past, you know, one in particular I was sort of way weary of, just looked too clean to be a homeless guy. I had the had rough clothes, and all, but something about his appearance made me start to think. Something about him, you know, I just kept it back in my head, you know, just this sort of like a, a sixth sense, you know, about him. So I never thought nothing about it. Um, we closed up the garage door, and then I went back over to New York or over to Queens where I was living. Never thought anything of it. And I met Pat. The next day, so we found this apartment, Pat knew off, to bring the money in, leave it there, you know. And we were bringing in different suitcases, grip bags and stuff like that. And I was bringing one in and I was was bringing it in. This guy comes towards me and he holds the door open for me. The same guy. Yeah, but see, I'm not thinking, you know, I look, it's a black guy, you know. The first thing I said to himself, fuck, there's no way a black guy in New York is going to open the door for a white guy. Something wrong there, you know. So he's holding the door for me to go in the elevator to go up the floor to see what floor I'm going into. And I'm thinking, where the fuck have I seen him? I've seen this guy before, you know. We go up the elevator, we go to the floor and we go in with all the money. We put it all in and leave it there. It sits there, sits there because it's a terrible smell. Comes a fuse money. I start to get migraines, you know. I hated looking at it and I started. The money stunk. Yeah, money stunk like hell, you know. I was getting terrible migraines, you know. Didn't want anything to do with it anymore, you know. I was sort of like fed up with it, you know. So I was telling Pat, give money to his organization, that organization, you know. Mm. Do whatever you have to do, you know. Until we find a way to get, get so much of it, you know. I mean, it's just sick looking at it, you know. And little did we know, that the FBI and I knew we were inside. Pat had brought a, a money counting machine, and he was counting all the money with it, all the $100 builders outside, the FBI was listening. So they're writing all this down, all the evidence. And then they had to bring it to a judge because they wanted a search warrant. The judge wouldn't give it to them unless they had enough evidence. Mm. And the judge says, yeah, I think you still have enough evidence now because he, he was reluctant to give them a search warrant at the start because they were just saying things that weren't true. But now they had all this evidence that they could hear a money machine going and all the $100 bills getting counted. So that was enough for the judge, you know.
0: At one point, you were looking to buy a house, weren't you? Though before Hellbreak Rose. you, you were sitting in a restaurant with Pat discussing the terms of the <laughs> terms of yes, the sale. That's
1: it. Yeah, I mean, at that time, I wasn't thinking right. I was like, just buying a house, make my life happy. Now, you know, of yeah. course, I wasn't going to be happy. But you know, little do we know, it, we're sitting in a restaurant, and right beside us is two FBI people listening into the whole conversation, taping everything. You know,
0: God, they were all over you. How many FBI agents were working on the case?
1: In our case, there was 20 to 30 from New York, New Jersey. But the actual case we found out later was over like 100 agents involved.
0: Talk me through the day that it all came unstuck.
1: Yeah, the day was Friday. I'll never forget it. So I was going to the post office in Queens. I had all this money. I was getting converted into money orders, postal orders. Jackson Heights in Queens, quite a busy, busy place. There's Korean fruit stores, Italian restaurants, I was busy, I was busy. And it was a Friday, I went down, I'll never forget it. So I went into the post office and I handed over, you know, so many thousands of dollars and got it converted into postal orders. And just, I went out the front door of the post office. And the minute I walked out, I knew something terrible was about to happen because the entire streets were empty. All the people who had been there half an hour ago, all the shops, all the businesses, was deserted. There was It was like a zombie movie. All of a sudden, I was just standing there on my own, looking up and down. And the hairs in the back of my head just told me something's going to happen, you know. So I tried to be calm, but my heart was beating like a drum. You know, my stomach was churning. I had my car, my van parked up the street. So I walked casually up the street. The whole streets are deserted. All of a sudden, this is one of the busiest streets in Jackson Heights in New York. And now there's not one person about And i'm walking up and i'm trying to breathe get in the car get in the car get away you know this is what the thought so i put my hand to get my keys and the next thing uh, everywhere just slammed up against the van all these FBI agents with guns put them in my head you know they kept shouting some words of guns words of guns words of guns i said i don't have a gun i've never had a gun in new york i don't carry guns whereas you know i started cursing though so we opened up the van, there's nothing in the van. No guns and all, you know, so a bit relieved then because I thought, you know, my wife's going to have a shootout, all this crap that's in their head, you know. And that was the end of it. That was the start of the nightmare of being arrested. Everybody was arrested. The FBI had been watching us for about six months.
0: Oh, your neighbours knew that as well, didn't they?
1: <laughs> all the neighbours knew it, and I didn't know it. Even my neighbour says we all knew the FBI was watching. Them. How did he not know? From the cars, and then they read the department facing me, and they, they were watching from that. And even my landlord said, fuck, I knew the FBI I was watching watching them. I don't know why he didn't know, you know. <laughs> so it just shows you what was my mind, my mind. I wasn't thinking about getting caught. I didn't believe I was going to get caught, you know. Crazy. And then when you do get arrested,
0: they, they try and do the good cop, bad cop with you, don't they?
1: Yes, that's so, so insulting, you know. So the FBI come in, they're doing this, you know. Oh, you're going to a penitentiary for life. Do you know what it's like? You're going to be getting screwed every day in the shower and all. You know what they're going to do to white boys and all this whole bullshit, you know. So I'm just sitting there and not saying anything. I, I don't open my mouth the whole way through it. So next thing is black guy comes in. He's in charge. He's in charge of the whole operation. Call him Stitt. He introduces himself. He says, do you remember me? I looked at him and says, yes, I think I do now. You're the homeless guy? She says, that's right. He was the homeless guy that day, you know. So he refused himself, you know, as the agent in charge of all this, the whole operation. He says, yeah, I've been watching you for six months, you know. He didn't realize, and he starts telling me, going to chapel, followed me to school, followed me to chapels, all this plop, you know. But I wouldn't talk to him. So he offered me a deal about, if you tell us everything that happened, going to give you a new ID, you're not going to jail. But I just stared at him. He couldn't, believe, couldn't understand this. He couldn't understand why I wouldn't talk to him, why I wouldn't accept his offer. He said, well, we're going to go to your friend. We've got your friend next door. And I thought, oh, who the fucks? I didn't know anybody else had been arrested. He says, we've well, got your, your pal Maloney the priest. So fuck my heart went, fuck, oh yeah. And we've got O'Connor. We've arrested him. And we've got McCormick. I said, McCormick, who the fucks McCormick? Who's this McCormick? You know, I thought, fuck, they're arresting everybody now for nothing. I don't know who this guy is, you know? So apparently McCormick owned the apartment, but he was supposed to be in uh, Bermuda or somewhere in holidays but Pat went and used his apartment without telling them, So they arrested him. He's a fucking teacher. You know? <laughs> it's, oh, my God. They charged him for being a mastermind in his paper. He's, what? What the fuck? I'm only back from Bermuda. what you talking about, you know? He knew nothing about it. I felt I felt terrible about, about him, you know? But Charlie, there's headlines everywhere. There's headlines in America. There's headlines all around Europe. My nephew's a very famous chef and he was in Germany and he's uh, sitting in a restaurant. He's looking up CNN News. He's on the TV and the next thing he sees me, up on the tv Uh, that says captured biggest robbery in america sam Muller. he says what has he done you know so my whole family like were sort of way outraged what i'd done you know i I often think about myself what did i do you know but it's too late you know you've you've done what you've done you know yeah yeah (laughs) you've done it all right
0: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
1: And then tell me about your lawyer. Tony Leonardo is big Italian, good looking, personal, intimidating, big six foot six. His father was the chief of police. So he was my lawyer. He did David Bowie. He was David Bowie's uh, lawyer. David Bowie was caught smoking marijuana or something in New York years ago. He represented all the mafia, had a great reputation of beating all his cases. He was like a Perry Mason type of guy. He never lost a case, you know. He says, oh, We're going to beat these bastards. They hate me because I always win and I'm going to win. You're going home. You know, this is what he said to me, like, you know. <laughs> I believed him, you know. I thought like, I knew i do I knew I was going to jail, like, you know. But he could, could convince you. He was that way. He was a good talker, you know. And he looked apart. Plus, in the prison that I was in, he kept me in the, in the uh, county jail, you know. And all the prison guards knew him. He had two uh, brother in laws that were in there, you know, a couple of cousins. So the guards were his cousins and all this here. It was a big family thing, like, you know. Right. Like,
0: Bit of a change-up from uh, being in the prisons in Northern Ireland.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, geez. Yeah, big time. But I was well looked after by the guards because a lot of them had Irish connections. I see. And their mothers, their mothers were telling them, you make sure you look after Sam. I'll kick your ass if I find out he doesn't get what he wants and all, you know, all this here, you know. So they were bringing me in the best of food and stuff, you know. Pet the priest. Didn't you find out that he was stealing from you? Well, this is the thing. And uh, there's a guy called Ronnie in this story, who's the original guy supposed to go on the, the first robbery, who sort of chickens out.
0: Oh, the guy that chickened out in the freeway following you on the van.
1: Yeah, he's still a good friend of mine. You know, he's an English guy from Liverpool, you know, he's a good boxer and all that, like, you know. Once he heard the robbery had went down, he knew about this, you see. Yeah. He, he, he says, Oh, I said, Robbie Sam, me, me, and, me and Sammy. And so we started nosing around. So Pat came to me one day and says, Oh, that English man, he's asking questions. He always call him the English man. You know, to me, Ronnie was a good guy from Liverpool, Irish, Irish English guy, you know. I says, Look, Pat, I'm going to give you some amount of money, 120,000, give to Ronnie. I'll keep him happy. He says, I don't think you should, Sam, because he won't. Well, I says, No, once he gets out, he'll be happy. Stop sticking his nose in. That's a bit, bit of money for him. Keep him out of trouble. So I took up a grant that Pat had given it to him, you know. And then in the trial, the FBI come to me and he so, uh, says, uh, What about all that money? Maloney was hiding under his bed. So I'm not talking. He said, I won't say nothing until the FBI that and talk all this shit, you know. I never think about what they're sending me. And he says, Yeah, $120,000 under his bed. So the minute I hear $120,000, my brain goes, Under 20,000. So that's the money I give him to give to Ronnie so Ronnie wouldn't stick his nose in anymore. Ronnie would go away and do his own business, you know. But he had told me he'd give it to Ronnie.
0: Going back to the trial then, or well, before the trial starts, Pat Maloney, the priest, mm-hmm. you've worked out that he was sort of taking taking money yeah. and sort of sharing it around to every man and his dog. Um, you didn't know about it, and then you saw your lawyer showed you footage of him going in and out of the room where the money was stored. And-
1: the hips of him coming in and out, in and out, because... At the start, I was going to plead guilty just to get Pat and everybody off. Tony says to me, oh, you're going to take her up for this priest, this great priest? I says, yeah. He said, well, I'm going to bring you over to the courthouse tomorrow morning. And I bet you change your mind when I show you what I have, what the FBI has. I didn't believe him, you know. But he brought me over to court the next morning. We went in, private room, had the screen up. He says, these are some of the tips that the FBI have. And I had all the different tapes of me and McDonald's and all this shit. And then I showed you Pat in the apartment on his own. Never supposed to be on his own. Always supposed to be a two of us together. And he's coming in with a couple of uh, black guys, a couple of Puerto Rican guys from his homeless place. And they're coming out. They're going in with nothing. <laughs> then all of a sudden, coming out with bags. You can see right away, it's all bags of money, at way sticking out, like you know. Then I have pictures of Pat in the van. Pat doesn't know, they're watching him from a camera, counting out all the money, you know. So when I started to see that, of course, it started starting to make me a wee bit pissed off. Like, you know, he had a big fan base, you know, homeless people and all, you know, community centres and all the cardinals and all, saying what an evil person I was, getting this pure man involved. He didn't know anything, you know. Mm. I thought, that's an idiot. He's intelligent. He knew where it came from. He knew what he was doing. Now he crying. Can't have it both ways, you know. We wanted to get all females on the jury. We didn't want any males.
0: Why did you want all females?
1: Well, this is, I didn't know at the time, you know, this is the plan that the lawyers had. He says, we're going to go in here and we'll select the jury. And I said, select the jury? You get to pick who's going to be on. He says, yes, this isn't fucking the north of Ireland. This is democracy. You know, we get to pick a dude who's on the jury. you know. I said, fuck, what a place, you know. Still a is bed, you know. And he says, we're going to go out here and we're going to get an all-female jury. It's never been done before, but we're going to do it. So we're saying, what the fuck is this? Why do you want an all-female jury? He said, well, could you imagine 13 women in the, in the one room? They'll never agree on anything, you know? And he says, that's all we need. One of them to the, 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 the disagree. And then the trial starts.
0: Many people he, there to watch?
1: Packed. You couldn't get in there. It. it was a show trial. It was just ridiculous. No one You can't get in. You have to get tickets and all this. It was just packed every day. Really? Covered every newspaper, you know, New York Times, everybody was there, you know. I was the only one was in prison. Everybody else was out in bail. You know, Christmas, Thanksgiving, Independence Day, blah, 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 you know. But uh, that's the way it works, you know.
0: What was the end result with the with the trial? Like, how long did you did you get guilty or innocent? Yeah, or the how end, long...
1: Well, the end result was, well, in the back of my head, I thought I was going for life in prison. But uh, the lawyers got together, and one of them came forward. He's now a judge now, this lawyer. One of them was a power patch lawyer. He's now a federal judge. And he came forward, and he says, listen, Sam, we're going to put this to the judge that your civil rights were violated. So I'm like, what are you talking about? She says, oh, your, your civil rights were violated. You were arrested in New York and brought up to Rochester, which is uh, eight hours away. When you were arrested in New York, you should have been charged down there and went to trial down there, but they brought you up here and they violated your rights. And I'm laughing, I said, fucking catch yourself on. They violated my rights? That's madness. So I go back to the county jail and I'm thinking, these lawyers are crazy. This judge is going to just you know laugh at them. You know, I mean, It's so ridiculous. So next thing I got caught over to the trial, over to the court, and they dropped all the big charges because my civil rights were violated. <laughs> what did they drop? They dropped the rob, doing the robbery, having the gun, having, the, you know, all the, all, everything. everything was dropped except having stolen money. That's what I was finally charged with. All the big charges were dropped, all the 20-year ones, the 30-year sentences dropped down to just having money. And the most they could give me was five years. I couldn't believe it. It was like I won the lotto. I went back to jail and I was so happy. Like no matter what happens, they're only going to give me five years.
0: Your human rights were violated coming from where you'd come from. You're just like, when did that happen? What part of the the process of my rights violated? Oh, it's crazy. And it's
1: funny. The judge judge said to me afterwards, he says, "Uh, I bet you've seen a different type of court from a court that you knew back in your own country. He says, this is what's called democracy and justice working compared to what you had back in Ireland. So as a judge even said it, you know. Wow.
0: When you were in prison, didn't Bill Clinton, President Bill Clinton, get involved in your situation?
1: Yes, what happened was there was a thing going on over here called the Good Friday Agreement. It was big news, you know, all the warring factors, the British and the Irish government, the American government, were all involved and they're trying to bring us peace to Ireland peace to the north so that everybody would stop fighting, you know. So it was called the Good Friday Agreement. Tony Blair was one of the, the key people behind it. him, his uh, cabinet ministers, and he was a, the uh, prime minister at the time. So he was deeply involved. Bill Clinton was involved. The Irish government was involved. You know, it was big, big news. You know, it was going on for a couple of months, people negotiating for a Good Friday Agreement. And then one morning, about two o'clock in the morning, I got taken out of my cell in the penitentiary. I said, where am I going? I thought they were moving me to an art prison. And they says, oh, you're going up to the big house with the governor. And I says, no, fuck, I'm not going up there. What, what am I going up there for? He says, oh, we can't tell you. We can't tell you. You have to come up. With, it's an order from the governor. I said, I don't give a shit. I'm not going up to fucking no governor's fucking house, you know? He says, well, you have, please, we'll get in trouble if they don't come, you know? So he says, I'm going up. I'm not talking to nobody. He says, that's okay. Just come up and talk to the governor be here, you know? Simon and the governor was there and he goes, uh, you have a phone call. So I said, what? Phone call? What? Why am I getting a phone call up here in your house? You know? He goes, it's from a White House. <laughs> so I says, No fucking way, I'm not talking to anybody. So I refuse to talk to you. I will refuse to take a phone call. So they sent me back to my cell. So about a week later I got this secret message sent in from people outside in the prison saying the next time you're told to go and make it take that phone call, make sure you fucking take it go up and listen to what's been told, you know? Would
0: you say you're a stubborn man at times, Sam? <laughs> Very stubborn, you
1: know? <laughs> Just ask my wife, you know? But uh, then I had no other choice, you know? So the next thing, two days later, I get a phone call again. Back up. The governor yes, okay, so I lift it up and tells me her name. She so says, I'm representing Bill Clinton. So I'm thinking, this is a fucking FBI trying to get me to say something stupid, you know? I go, okay, go ahead. How's Bill doing? You know, I'm going like talking like shit, you know, he says, yeah, is Bill okay now? She says, please, this is very serious. You're going to be released, and sent back home because of the Fred agreement. President Clinton has signed your clemency, you know? I said, oh yes, okay. And tell him to have a nice day, you know, cause I just, I just thought it was FBI. Fucking with my head, you know? So forgot all about it. Next thing, my cellmate from Derry, he comes running down to me about two days later, he shows me headlines in the local newspapers here, the Irish News. He said, Miller coming home from penitentiary. So then I started to fucking think, could this be real? You know, is it how can this be happening? What's happening here? This is bad, you know. About a week after that, I got taken out of the cell, flew down to New York, kept overnight to get home by uh JFK and my am there, I'm in the cell, next thing I hear these accents, you know. And I can't fucking hear it. it's all these Belfast Saxons talking, you know. And one of the guards opens the door. And I can't believe who's, who's there. All these screws from a blanket protest are there to take me home. Oh, no. No, I couldn't believe it. And they're all talking. They're saying, are you going to give us any trouble, Miller? You know? I said, well, I'm not giving you any trouble as long as you don't give me any trouble, you know. And they says, okay, well come and pick you up tomorrow. We're going back to Belfast, you know. I still couldn't fucking believe all this, you know, and I slammed the door in this, the American screw. He opens the door and goes, Were you guys speaking Gaelic? Because we were speaking so fast, you know, Belfast accents and all. He says, Oh, was that it was great to listen to. You guys are all speaking Gaelic. And I says, No, no, we're, just, we're speaking English. He says, What? He says, I couldn't understand the words you were saying. You know, I says, Yeah, because we were speaking so fast, you know. But they took me back down to New York. And then, of course, we're on the plane. And British are all They refused to take me. I was sitting in the the screws, there's six screws, and I'm sitting there, we're all inside the plane, there's people on the plane, and then the the, uh, captain, he refuses to take a plane to uh, Belfast because of me, you know, because he said, oh, I'm not fucking having this guy, he's handcuffed, he's a dangerous man, he's a terrorist, and all this bullshit, you know? So the screws then says, well, we're not getting off the plane. Fair play then, you know? They Mm -hmm. said, well, if you don't bring him back to Belfast, we're staying here on the plane with him. So the next thing, there's a standoff on the runway because the, plane, the plane's refusing to move. This guy, this captain. Next thing, he the FBI come on board and whatever they said to him, told him get the plane in the air, or you'll find yourself staying overboard in one of ourselves tonight. Next thing is planes away up in the fucking air, you know. And I thought, I'll have to give the screws a wee bit of credit, you know, oh.
2: you know,
1: for not taking any for not taking any shit.
0: They came through for you. Fair enough too. They owed you. It was just. A-
1: <laughs> Just a funny way to end it all, you know. Such a crazy story.
0: And So, were you yeah. free then when you got back to?
1: Yeah, because this is a strange thing. They wanted to put me in at the Belfast prisons, you know. But when I went there, they brought me there, and they, and they says uh, the governor came to me. and says, "We can't keep you here because we don't have any papers to hold you. It would be illegal. Then you would sue us for for uh, keeping you in prison when we're not supposed to." So they just let me out. I went to get the train. Nobody knew about it. It was all done secretly. My family didn't know I'd I'd arrive back in Belfast or anything, you know. I had no money. So the governor gave me, I think, a train ticket uh, from Derry. It was a prison in Derry, I think, they were holding me. And I just went straight back into Belfast. And that was me home. Done. Just to start a new life as a writer, you know. Oh, my
0: gosh. That's so hectic. And they're going to make your story into a movie, aren't they?
1: Yeah, it's it's going to be made, yeah. At the minute, uh, Mel Gibson has a whole script, you know. And it's funny, when the book came out, Warner Bros. bought the rights within 24 hours. But little did I know that Mel Gibson had tried it bad, but they bought it before him, you know? Because he always wanted to do it. He wanted to to write it and act it and everything. He loved it. He loved the whole book, you know, when he'd done it. So it's back in his, he's got it now. He's got the rights to it now. So who knows, you know, what's going to happen.
0: Didn't President Bush try and stop it from happening or something? Yeah,
1: that's why They dropped it because... Warner Bros. were making it in the movie, and President Bush heard about it, and 9/11 tragically had happened. So he got wind of all this here, you know, and he started saying, uh, "How can you just make a movie about this terrorist after what's happened here, 9/11?" He's just making political gain out of it, you know. So they dropped it. They got scared. Warner Bros. got very scared, you know. They dropped it. They didn't want anything more to do with the book, you know. Right? that's just sat there for a couple of years, then was picked up again, you know. So that's good, it's going to get made this time maybe, and right you know, because if Warner Bros hadn't made it, it would have been shit. It would have been like Rambo. Rambo goes to New York or some shit like from Belfast to New York. Mm. Rambo, one of them shitty Hollywood.
0: At least they, they would have done a good job of the uh, hallucinating part where you were seeing when you were
1: fighting Daffy Duck. Yeah, special effects would have been great, you know. <laughs> Plus, wow. It was a good,
0: good, you know. Well, Sam Miller, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Uh, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it.
0: No worries. And, It is such a crazy story. Of course, it is getting made into a movie. Mel Gibson's on board with it now. If you want to read the book, I can tell you now the book is incredible. You just... Every page, you can't believe what is happening and what's going on. Highs and lows all the way through it. Um, it, is, it is one of the best things I've ever read. I'm not just saying that to blow smoke up you, Sam, but it's is, it is <laughs> incredibly well written.
1: Congratulations on oh, that. Thank you, Andy. You're a gentleman. Thank you very much.
0: No worries. And thank you very much for listening. would really appreciate it if you could leave us a review and tell us what you thought of Sam's interview. Until next time.